Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Donald Hoffman. He's Professor Emeritus in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irvine. And today we're going to focus again on his great book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview and also, of course, for our first talk, which was great and I recommend to everyone. So, Dr. Hoffman, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for having me again. This is a, it's a great pleasure. So, let's perhaps just do a little bit of recapping here. So, uh, generally speaking, uh, could you give us perhaps a summary of what is your interface theory of perception, just for the people who might not have watched the first episode? Right. So, most of us intuitively feel that when we look around and see the sun and the moon and trees and the ocean and so forth, that um, we're seeing reality pretty much as it is. Of course, we're not seeing all of its complexity. We don't see all the little microphysical particles that it's made of and so forth. But, but we, we think that to the extent that we're seeing things, we're in general, if we're sober and healthy, we're, we're seeing reality as it is. And uh, so the interface theory of perception, which is based on a mathematical analysis of evolutionary theory, says that it, maybe we're not seeing what we thought. Um, from an evolutionary point of view, evolution shapes the senses of um, organisms to guide adaptive behavior. In other words, to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. That's what evolution does. And many evolutionary theorists have thought that perhaps um, by when evolution shapes our senses to guide adaptive behavior, the way evolution does that is to shape them to show us the truths about reality that we need to survive. So when I see an apple, I see the true color and true shape and the true distance and so forth. I see the truths that I need to um, eat the apple and, and you know do whatever I need to do with an apple. And so we did a mathematical analysis for using evolutionary game theory to just ask what is the probability that evolution would shape sensory systems to um, not only guide adaptive behavior, but, but guide adaptive behavior by, sh but by showing you true structures of objective reality. And it, it turns out it's a theorem that the probability is zero, that um, evolution has shaped any sensory system of any organism to see any true structure of objective reality is precisely zero. And so it, it, it remains true that evolution shaped our senses to guide adaptive behavior, to keep us alive long enough to reproduce. And it's just wrong to think that it does more than that, that it actually shapes us to see the truths uh, about uh, truths about objective reality. Now, again, I, I'm just saying that this is a theorem of evolution by natural selection. I, I'm not saying that this is the absolute truth. I'm just saying if you buy evolution by natural selection, then this is a theorem of that theory. And so if, if you want to say that our senses evolved, then you have to conclude uh, from, from that theory, the probability of zero, that they evolved to show you truths. They did evolve to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. That's true. But they didn't evolve to show you the truths, uh, uh, any truths about objective reality. Now, one can look for deeper theories. We don't have them right now. But one could look for deeper theories um, about biology. And, and perhaps evolution by natural selection can be shown to be a special case of some deeper theory. And maybe in that deeper theory, 
it is possible for us to, you know, in that deeper theory, we transcend the, the limits of evolution and we find that there's a deeper theory that, that might allow us to see evolution, see reality as it is, or parts of reality as it is. But we don't have such a theory right now, so as a scientist, you know, it's my job to say, here's the state of the art of our science. So, so what the interface theory perception then basically says, our senses are more like a user interface. They guide adaptive behavior, just like you know, your, your desktop interface on your computer lets you control all the diodes and resistors and voltages in your computer, even if you don't even know what voltages and diodes and resistors are. <laughs> it allows you to manipulate them um, by, by a very simple interface that lets you, you know, edit photos, write emails, and do whatever else, you know, tweet, tweet and so forth, whatever you need to do. But what you're really doing is toggling millions of voltages in a very detailed way, and you don't have to know about that. And that's what evolution seems to have done. It, it, it gave us senses that allows us to play the game of life without really knowing what's under the hood. What, what are we really doing? Um, so, so we think of space and time and physical objects as the truth. And really, it's a very shallow user interface, very, very shallow. Um, the reality goes far more interesting and deep, I think, than what we see in space and time. So is this true for all sensory systems, or is it that, for example, one of them is closer to objective reality than the others? Or is there, for example, a hierarchy when it comes to that? No, the, the theorem that we, I just mentioned, um, and I should mention that um, my, my collaborators are you know, Chaitan Prakash and Manish Singh and Robert Prentner and, and uh, Chris Fields and, 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 and many others, um, Brian Marion, Justin Mark. They're, they're, um, so this is not just me, but, but the result of our work, and, and I'll, I'll emphasize on this, Chaitan Prakash is the mathematician who's proven the, the, the strongest theorems here. So, so you know, tip my hat to, to Chaitan on this. Without him, I wouldn't have this to say. But, but it's, it's basically a theorem that um, all the senses have been shaped to hide reality and just guide adaptive behavior. So, for example, you might think that when you touch an apple, you know, maybe vision can mislead you, but touch, no, you're, you're in direct contact with reality. And, and the answer is no, no, touch is just as much a, a user interface construction as, as, as vision. It's the same thing with hearing and smell and so forth. So, could you explain the idea of shape as an, ef as an effective code for fitness, what does that mean exactly? Right, so in evolutionary theory, what's really guiding the evolution of perception are the fitness payoff functions. Mm -hmm. So these fitness payoff functions, you know, determine for, you know, given the state of, of objective reality, whatever that reality might be, and given an organism like a human versus a cat versus a monkey, you know, whatever the organism might be, the state of that organism, um, uh, hungry, sated, whatever, and, and, and action, feeding, fighting, fleeing, or mating, <clears throat> the, the fitness payoffs give you a, a number for that organism state and for that action. So if I'm a hungry lion looking to eat um, and it's a steak in front of me, eating the steak um, can give you a lot of fitness payoff points. Think about like points in a video game or something like that. You're, you're playing the game of life and you're getting these fitness payoff points. So, so you can imagine then 
that these fitness payoff functions are really complicated, right? The world can be a really complicated thing, whatever it might be. I'm not talking about space-time. Whatever objective reality is, it's even more complicated than space-time and objects in space-time. So, so there's really complicated reality, and then all these organisms, their actions, and, and you know, the states of the organisms. So there are these compl complicated fitness payoffs, and what, what objects are, so physical objects and their shapes, they are compact representations of fitness payoffs. So you can imagine perhaps, perhaps that, that there are many, many, this is a little technical point, but I mean, ultimately there's just one, one fitness payoff function, right? There's this one master payoff function that I, that I sort of outlined there. But one can casually think about it as, you know, there's lots of little fitness payoff functions that you have to deal with. They're all part of this master one, but you could think about there's all, all these fitness payoff functions you have to deal with. And so what, what we do is we, we cluster them. The ones that are very similar, we cluster them into data structures so that we can sort of deal with, don't have to deal with all the fitness payoffs separately. We can deal with them in a reduced, again, user interface symbol that deals with them. And that's what we call objects and shapes and colors and motions and, and mass and hardness are all properties of these objects that are guiding adaptive behavior. So the objects, this, this makes a very, very clear prediction. Objects do not exist when they're not perceived. Flat, clean prediction. So in, in physics terms, that would be local realism is false. The idea that, that objects exist, exist um, in space and time and have definite values of properties when they're not observed. That's, that's, that, that's the realism, and locality means that the properties have influences that don't propagate faster than the speed of light. So this theory of evolution by natural selection clearly entails that local realism is false. Those objects don't even exist. They don't even have shapes when, when they're not perceived. And by the way, um, the Nobel Prize in Physics this year um, is going to three physicists who did the experiments that, that, that empirically confirmed the predictions of quantum theory that local realism is false. So evolution agrees with physics, quantum, quantum physics, that um, local realism is false. And uh, this may confound our, our intuitions. It may make us really scratch our heads and go, what's going on here? But our best scientific theories, evolution by natural selection, and then uh, you know, quantum field theory, which combines quantum mechanics with Einstein's um, theory of space-time, and, and quantum uh, gravity, these all agree that uh, local realism is false, and uh, it's time for us to just get used to it. So shape is just a feature, a data structure, that allows us to interact with whatever objective reality is in a way that allows us, from an evolutionary point of view, to you know, survive long enough to, to, to grab the apple, to eat the apple, to um, whatever we need to do. Mm -hmm. um I don't know if you agree with this or if this makes sense to you, but uh, I mean, of course, dealing with this kind of information is very weird and, and counterintuitive because, oh my God, how is it that this table in front of me is not objective reality or whatever I'm seeing now is not objective reality uh, and whatever it is, some sort of complicated geometry out there or something like that. We might get also into that later. Uh, it's uh, radically different from whatever kind of thing we experience through our senses. But I think that perhaps uh, an easier way to understand why 
that seems to be the case is comparing ourselves perhaps to other animals, like particularly animals that have sensory systems which we don't really use, like for example a bat who has echolocation and that kind of thing, because I mean, of course, if we look into other organisms and they don't perceive reality the same way, and even in terms of vision, they don't process or construct, let's say, the same colors uh, and don't hear the same frequencies of sounds and all of that, that might, also, that of course, I think also points to the fact that whatever we perceive and other systems perceive do not really correspond to reality. Otherwise, uh, what would be the real reality here? Would it be a bat reality, a human reality, a dog reality? Right. Right. I, I, I would agree that, that those thinking along those lines can maybe help people because it is mm -hmm. very, very difficult to imagine that something you've believed all of your life, that I see an apple because there is an apple, and it has that shape in my perception because it has that shape in reality and it really is red and it really does taste the way it, I mean, so we believe all those things and, and to have it be said that, no, that's just your, uh, a useful fiction that, they, that keeps you alive. Uh, it does help to, to realize that other animals have different senses, but one could still, if, if you were, if you wanted to hold on to space-time and, and physical objects as the reality, I mean, you could say, well, but but they're just seeing a different aspect of that reality, right? They're seeing, we might see light, for example, in the range of 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers, and maybe a bee can see a little bit, uh, you know, out, out of that range. But but still, it, light light is real. Light and space-time is real, and, and bees are just seeing a different aspect of that pre-existing reality. One could try to go there, and, and so I'm saying that if you if you are thinking about it that way, you're you're not thinking big enough. It, it's it's that no animal sees reality as it is, and the very notion of photons is part of the interface. Photons are not part of objective reality. They're, as physicists would say, they're <clears throat> irreducible representations of the Poincaré group of space-time, the symmetries of space-time. So their particles, the physicist's particles, are, are symmetries, basically the representations of symmetries of space-time, and space-time itself is just a user interface. So, so what, what this is saying is that space-time itself and all the particles in space-time, like all, you know, bosons, leptons, and quarks, all the fundamental particles in physics, <clears throat> including photons and electrons and, and things like that. Even those are just interface, user interface um, symbols. They're not part of objective reality. So, so, but, but I agree, Ricardo, that, that, you know, the kind of thing you're saying, if we think about other animal senses and how they see differently from us, yes, that, that can really help us to get out of this box. But still, I find it myself into... Emotionally, it's very, very difficult to wrap my head around this. You know, even though I've been working on this for years, you know, there's a part of me that just, frankly, disbelieves. It's hard to believe that I could be that wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, probably we can't really live our lives uh, without uh, actually believing that whatever we perceive is uh, reality. 
right? We, or do you think that's possible? We, we can, but, but this now raises a very interesting thing that the spiritual traditions point out. Hmm. By spiritual traditions often point out that the, a key insight is that you are not an object in space-time. Hmm. Right? So thinking about yourself as just this little object in space-time is sort of the, the thing that you let go of in many spiritual traditions. What you realize is that you, you are not your body, you are not an object in space-time. Instead, you are, uh, in some sense, a consciousness that, that has an avatar in space-time that you create, with, that you call your body, and, and all the things that you see. And so in, in many spiritual traditions, I find it interesting that evolution should actually, in some sense, support this implication mm -hmm. of spiritual traditions, that you are not your body. And for spiritual traditions, it's really an interesting thing that, that part of what they say is the key to waking up is to disidentify yourself from your body and to, to view yourself as not um, a little thing in a body, but the consciousness that, that creates everything that you're seeing, including your image of a body. So, so, it, so for everyday life, I, I agree with what you're saying, you know, for everyday life, we can live as though we are just objects in space-time. But certain spiritual traditions are just that um, we should even let go of that for everyday life. Um, and that seems, normally we think of evolution of natural selection as being at, at odds with any kind of spiritual ideas. But here, strikingly, um, they, they, there's a rapprochement. <laughs> but what do you think we can say is real? Then I mean, is is there something that is part of the interface that you think we can say is real or not at all? Well, that's a great question because it it raises the issue of what do we mean by the word real? Mm -hmm. And there are many meanings, but there are two I think that are very important to dissociate. One. Um, usage of the word real would be, I would say something is real if it exists independent of anybody perceiving it. Mm. That's one notion of reality. So it's still there even if nobody is around. Right. That, that's right. That's right. So that would be one notion of, of um, reality. Another notion of reality would be um, my sensory experiences are real in the sense that if I have a headache right now, right, I would say that that is a real experience. Now, of course, that, that experience depends on me perceiving it. So it's not real in the other sense, right, uh, like uh, real that it would exist even if nothing was perceiving it. A headache is not like that. It's, it's a real experience. So I would, I would distinguish real in terms of experiences, because if you said my headache isn't real, I might be quite angry with you. Yeah, it's real enough that I need to take an aspirin or something like that. So it, it's, it's real enough. In that sense, it's a real experience. But there's another sense of real that we often have in mind, which is real in the sense that it would exist even if no one perceived. And so let's talk about real in the uh, what we'll call the objective sense versus real in the experiential sense. And <clears throat> So in terms of real in the objective sense, nothing that you perceive is real. Now, everything that you perceive is a real experience. When I look at the sun, <clears throat> I'm having a real experience. So, so much of an experience, I have to close my eyes. I can't look at it for more than just a glance. 
So it's a very real experience. I have to be careful about it. <clears throat> but there is no objective sun. Whatever I'm interacting with is not nothing in space-time, and it's, there's nothing like the sun. The sun is just my user interface. So, so we have real experiences, but those come and go. I, the sun exists only when I look, and it ceases to exist when I don't, because it's that that's all of it, it is an experience. And we don't have any particular objects that we can say are we know are real in the subjective sense. Right. The, the, so the, the, the Nobel Prize in physics is basically for saying local realism is false. And people might say, well, we can quarantine that result. It's only for microphysical particles. But, but that misunderstands quantum theory. There's nothing in quantum theory that says, oh, this theory stops at you know, 10 to the minus 20 centimeters. There's nothing that says that. Um, quantum theory is universal. It, it, it applies at all scales. There are, you know, issues about coherence and collapse, perhaps, if you take the collapse view. But, but there's nothing that says the local realism result um, is limited to mic microscopic objects, nothing at all. And, and, and as physicists do um, more and more sophisticated experiments, they're finding entanglement and, and collapse apply to bigger and bigger objects. And superposition applies to bigger and bigger objects. And so, so I, I think the... The result is that we should just recognize that local realism is false. And so in that sense, um, we don't know of any real objects in the objective sense. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, when it comes to science itself, I get that there, I, I guess that there might be two issues here. So the first one is uh, we arrive at these conclusions through evolutionary theory right but that's something a theory that we've developed within uh, the interface let's say within uh, space time and all of that so uh, I, I mean isn't that an issue because right. um, if we are talking about things that we perceive in the interface I mean, isn't it a limitation that we're doing it within the interface and then saying that whatever uh, are the conclusions that we derive from something that we learned about within the interface right. uh, have nothing to say at all about what objective reality is? Isn't that a, an issue? Yeah, that, that's a, a very, very good objection to raise, absolutely. and. Um, and, and one can even make it harder. I mean, there was a PhD thesis um, uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and came out just this year, where where the it's a philosophy PhD, where the the the, the, the new doctor um, spent quite a bit of time showing that, that that he thought that I had to be contradicting myself to use evolutionary theory to show that space and time and, and physical objects like organisms and DNA. And so forth um, are just so he he and and, and um, several um, philosophers have have argued that there's there's no way I could do this without uh, re refuting myself. So and and so the answer my answer is that that this is how science always works. So what we do is we we take a theory. Let let, let me take um, Einstein's theory for example. So because mm -hmm. that's that's surely bona fide science. So Einstein 
has this idea that space and time or their, their merge into space time is fundamental. It's a fundamental reality. And in 1905, he writes down the equations of special relativity. And 10 years later, he writes down the equations of general relativity for curved space time. And so, so he has his intuition is that space and time or space time is fundamental and that curves of space time are what we experience as gravity. But that's his fundamental reality. So he writes down the equations. A year later, 1916 or 1917, um, uh, a German guy named Schwarzschild is looking at Einstein's equations and he realizes that they have a solution that we now call black holes. Well, Einstein didn't know that. He didn't like it. He didn't believe it for, for, for decades. He didn't believe in black holes. But, but that's a, it's a clear prediction of the theory. And when you then combine Einstein's theory with, with quantum mechanics, that theory and quantum mechanics clearly predict that space-time is not fundamental. Right? Space-time, in, in fact, it tells you space-time ceases to have any operational meaning at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters or 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So, so now, now wait a minute, how can we do that without refuting ourselves? Einstein started by saying space and time are fundamental. He wrote down the math. How can that theory now come back without refuting itself and say, no, space and time are not fundamental? That's not a self-refutation of the theory. That's not a problem. That is the glory of science. In science, our theories are not just hand waves. They're so precise that our theories tell you where they stop. And that's the sign of a really true scientific theory. And the only theories that I'm really, frankly, interested in are theories that tell you their own limits. So, so the same thing is true of evolution by natural selection. Of course, Darwin was thinking about organisms real organisms, nature red and truth and claw, fighting in, in space and time. And later versions, of course, have things like DNA and genes in our you know, modern synthesis of, of evolution. Again, viewed as, as objects in space and time and so forth. So how could evolutionary theory possibly tell us that space and time are not fundamental and therefore that organisms and so forth are, you know, and DNA itself are not, how, that's why we want evolutionary theory. It has such precision, it tells us the limits of its own concepts. So the, the key point to understand is that theories are just theories. They're not the truth. We write down our theories. We write down, we say, let's make these assumptions. And if we're, it's a good theory, we then make them mathematically precise. And then we look and we press the theory and see what it can do for us. Like Newton's theory, can we can send rockets to the moon. That's great. Einstein's theory, we can actually get the GPS system to, to work. Without his general theory of relativity, GPS wouldn't work. So they're wonderful theories. But those theories, be, besides all the technology that they give us, their real contribution is to tell us when those concepts have their limits. Space and time makes no sense beyond 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. It just doesn't. And evolution of natural selection tells us that if you want to use the concepts of objects in space time and organisms and DNA and so forth, that's fine. But, but ultimately, all of this is just a user interface description of something deeper. And it, and it tells us that this language has a necessary limit. Now, Einstein's theory can't tell us what's beyond space time. 
All I can tell is, is that space-time stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and you need to look for something beyond space-time, utterly outside space-time. And evolutionary theory agrees. It says if you use space-time or that language, you get this wonderful theory of evolution of natural selection. It's very, very powerful. Even though it's not the final word, it's extremely powerful. I've done a lot of consulting for companies using evolutionary theory, evolutionary psychology to help companies in advertising and marketing and so forth. It works. It's it, it, just like Einstein's stuff works in this realm. It's evolutionary theory works and it's, it's beautiful. But what's truly profound about it is that it tells you its limits and says, now you need a deeper theory. So what we have to do now as scientists is say, okay, I need to posit a new theory outside of space-time. And Einstein can't tell us what it is. Evolution can't tell us what it is. But those two theories can tell you when you're wrong. Because what we have to do is we propose a new theory beyond space-time. And then, to be taken seriously, we have to show how space-time and evolution of natural selection arise as a special case, a projection, for example, of our deeper theory. Now, if we can do that, and we get back evolutionary theory and Einstein's theory and quantum theory, right? See, quantum theory is not fundamental either. It's just a theory within space-time. So if, if we can, if our deeper theory gives us evolution by natural selection, it gives us quantum field theory, um, that doesn't mean our theory is right, but it means that our current science doesn't veto the theory. But if we can't get those theories, if we can't get evolution and, and quantum field theory, then those theories will tell us you're wrong, right? You, 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 whatever you're doing is, is not right because it doesn't project into to something that we already know and love. So we don't throw away our old scientific theories. We, we cherish them and we use them, and they act as a, um, a guide to throw away bad attempts at a broader theory. So, so it... it so your question is a good one because it really, I mean, it, it, it's not just the layman who worries about this, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's brilliant philosophers. I mean, the, the, the people that, that have, have come at me with this are, 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 are brilliant. Um, some of them are friends, um, you know, but friends and colleagues. Um, and this is a, a very difficult issue, but it really gets to the heart of what science is. We're creating theories and no theory is the final word. There is no theory of everything. Science can never have a theory of everything. This is, we can go into it if you want, but it's a, it's a consequence of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And so theories are tools and we create the theories and we evaluate the theories and we judge them and then we transcend them and we come up with new theories. Um, and we show that our old, so, so, and we can do that um, without self-contradiction because we don't need to believe our theories in the first place. We, we make our assumptions, we write our theories, we say under these assumptions, here's what follows. And if I've done my homework right, the theory is so precise that it then tells you, I only work up to this point and then I fall apart. So that's what a good theory is. And by the way, that's one reason um, why I love to have these kinds of ideas brought into the spiritual realm because when we have theories that don't tell you their limits precisely, then it's easy to be dogmatic because you, you never know when you're when you're wrong. But there's something very humbling to know that with all the power of space and time, for example, and all the stuff that we can do with it, that the theory itself says, "But hey, this isn't it." That's that's really humbling. It, it says there's a much deeper theory, and you need to go look for it. So so this is a real um, 
antidote to dogmatism. And and I think um, dogmatism really is is us not being awake to new learning possibilities. And so I love this anti-dogmatic aspect of scientific theories. They keep you open to to re recognizing what my theory is just my theory. It's not the truth. And I need to be open to the next step beyond my theory. Of course, if my current theory is worth its salt, um, it will be a, a, a special case of the deeper theory. So, so but anyway, you, you can see your, your question touches on a very, very important and deep realm. Yes, and the other issue I wanted to raise having to do with science is, so if science is empirical and it relies on our sensory systems to be done because we have to formulate hypotheses and we have to test them empirically and that's done, let's say, within the interface and it's about what happens in the interface then, can we use science to learn about objective reality? Well, we can use science to propose theories that are beyond space and time. We can do that. And even though you're correct, and that's an important point, that all of our data are only from within space and time, right? Any, the Large Hadron Collider is an object in space and time. My, my lab at the University of California is an object in space and time, and, and the, my, my apparatus for measuring human subjects and their, their visual abilities, for example, <clears throat> is all physical stuff. All of the experiments are done in space and time. That's where we get, get all of our data. So, but still, what we can do is our new theories beyond space-time we can write them down mathematically, show precise mathematical projection into space-time, and then say, if this is happening outside of space-time, here's what I would measure inside space-time. So in other words, we can do that. So in, in physics, for example, um, the physicists have now known for, for a few decades that space-time cannot be fundamental, and they've known that it has no operational meaning um, beyond 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. But they haven't just sort of said, oh, well, okay. Well, they haven't just given up. They, they, the, the younger generation in particular has, has said, wow, okay, let's, let's let go of space-time. What objects or what structures and theories are beyond space-time? And they found some. You know, there's something called the amplitudehedron that Nimar Kani Hamed and uh, Yaroslav Trinka and others have, have, have worked on and, and discovered. There's something called decorated permutations like these are permutations, like shuffling cards, but, but they're decorated. There's, there's a little trick, tricky twist to them and we can talk about it more. But, but so they found decorated permutations. But what they've done, so they said, here are these structures beyond space-time. But then they say, but here's how they project into space-time. And here's how, for example, um, the geometry and the volumes of the amplitudehedron predict scattering events, the, 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 the amplitudes for scattering events at the Large Hadron Collider. So, so they give you a, a structure that's beyond space-time. It's not some little thing inside space-time. You have to think entirely outside of space-time. This is it's hard. It's, it's hard to, but this is, these are structures entirely beyond space-time. They could have trillions, quadrillions of dimensions. The amplitudehedron could have quadrillions of dimensions, not just four or 10 or 11. Quadrillions of dimensions 
beyond space-time, but there's a precise way of mapping it into space-time and predicting precise, like two gluons smash into each other, four gluons go spraying out, and predicting the, the probability, the amplitudes for those kind of events. So that's what we have to do. We, we do have to, as you say, we have to do all of our experiments in space-time, so our theories outside of space-time, must, we must project them into space-time and get back like quantum field theory and evolution of natural selection as the special cases within space-time, and that's where we get our data. But then the data inside space-time can help us to disconfirm or partially confirm um, our new baby steps outside of space-time. But again, I'm not saying that the new theories beyond space-time are the final truth. Think of, think of every new theory as our next baby step, and we'll always be baby-stepping because Gödel's incompleteness theorem tells us that even if we do this for hundreds and hundreds of billions of years, the new theories that we have will barely scratch the surface of objective reality. But, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't these, at least to some extent, epistemologically different from the scientific method? Because, for example, if we approach things through mathematics, it's not exactly the same as using empirical science to do it. Right. Very good point. So we both use our senses in observations and we use logic and reason in the construction of our mathematically precise mm -hmm. theories. And so those are both tools that, that we are using. And What's interesting is that logic and mathematical reasoning itself tells you its limits as well. So, it, so Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So I should I mentioned it a little bit. So I should say, so Gödel's incompleteness theorem is is um, uses ma mathematical logic to to show that the notion of truth transcends the notion of mathematical proof. So no matter how complicated and, and evolved our mathematics gets, we will, our, our mathematics itself tells us that the range of truths will forever escape whatever mathematics you have. So even though your mathematics can at, produce infinite number of proofs of true things, so, so it, it, it can talk about an infinite number of truths, Gödel showed that there's an, essentially a, a, a larger infinity of truths that your theory, your, your mathematics, or your logic will never be able to, to derive. And if you add those new truths into your formal system, then Gödel says, well, now I'll show you some new truths that, that, um, that are true but can't be proven or derived within your new formal system. So, so what I said about scientific theories is true about math and logic themselves. Math and logic themselves are so wonderful tools that they also tell us their limits. They tell us that they're useful tools for exploring truth, but that, that the truth will never be fully explored using those, those tools. And our senses um, 
so though that helps us to understand what our senses are doing. Our senses are giving us um, information that's, that's at most partial and only within a certain format, and it itself is not the final. So we're, we're, we're stuck in a, in a world where we have experiences and we have logic, and that's all that science can use is, is math, logic, and, and then empirical data, our, our senses, sometimes augmented with the, you know, you know, telescopes and colliders and microscopes and so forth. <clears throat> but so there, it's very, very humbling. Math and logic, as powerful as they are, tell us their limits. Science tells us its limits. Our theories, our good theories tell us their limits, and the theories that don't tell us their limits are, are not terribly interesting. Those are very, very shallow theories. And and so this puts us in a very, very interesting place where, as you say, it's an epistemological issue. How much can we know? What we, what's interesting is that we can know that using our concepts and our senses, that kind of knowledge has hard limits. So that's that's very, very interesting. Now, what can we know beyond that? Um, I don't know, but but it's, it's quite possible. You know, again, the spiritual traditions have an interesting point on this, where they they say that um, conceptual knowledge has its limits, but you are the the conscious being that has those concepts, and 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 you are that infinite intelligence. The girdle's incompleteness theorem points to you are that infinite intelligence. It can't know itself conceptually. It can't know itself ultimately through scientific theories and through observation. It can only give a partial understanding of itself that way. But in some sense, you can know that truth only by being it in silence. You you are that unlimited truth, that unlimited intelligence. And you can see parts of yourself through math and science and logic. Um, but ultimately, you can only know it in a non-conceptual way by being it. Now, that's an interesting place, again, where I think spiritual traditions and, and science seem to be con converging. Um, they, they at least don't seem to be disagreeing. So tell us now about consciousness. I mean, in this new picture, let's say, of reality, where do you place it? Right, so most of my my friends and colleagues who are studying consciousness um, in cognitive neuroscience and, and the philosophy of mind, for example, artificial intelligence. Uh, I would say 99% of my friends and colleagues who are doing this work um, are still assuming that objects in space-time are fundamental, like neurons and brains. Mm -hmm. And they're assuming that somehow um, the right patterns of activity or connectivity within objects in space-time. Somehow, when it gets the right structure or the right dynamics, uh, it gives rise to, to consciousness. So, I mean, so my friend Stuart Hameroff and, and his co you know, collaborator Roger Penrose have the idea that orchestrated collapse of quantum states of microtubules, uh, quantum states of certain you know, electrons in microtubules, um, gives rise to, to consciousness or, or is consciousness. Integrated information theory thinks that that um, any system, physical or not, um, that has the right pattern of integrated information will have con will will be conscious. Although they haven't said what non-physical things might 
to instantiate it. So for, for right now, I'll just take it as they're assuming space-time is fundamental as well until they explicitly tell us what, what other substance or what other kind of entities they, they think could instantiate, really instantiate the integrated information. But so all of my, my friends and colleagues are saying that they start with, with space-time, usually with things like brains and neurons, but, um, but, but you could have you know, more general like artificial intelligence systems with the right kind of complexity, and that will create consciousness. So the standard view is consciousness, what is consciousness? Um, it's a latecomer, space-time is fundamental. For most of the history of the universe, there was no consciousness. Early on, there was no life. Life evolved, and eventually, life evolved to have con you know, to be conscious. So, so consciousness is a very um, a recent newcomer in the history of the universe since the Big Bang, and it's not it's not fundamental. I think that that entire program um, is is unsalvageable. It, it's 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 fundamentally wrong because it takes space time to be fundamental, and 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 we know that that's false. So I'll be very very clear. Most of my colleagues think that, that brains cause consciousness. My answer is neurons do not even exist when they're not perceived. Neurons have no causal powers. Neurons cause none of my behavior. I have no neurons right now. Now, if you looked inside my skull, you would see neurons, but you would be creating those neurons on the fly that you see. They're, they're, you create them when you look and you destroy them when you look away. So, so neurons have no causal powers. They cause none of our conscious experiences. And that, that one statement right there um, contradicts 99% of the research on consciousness. So, so what is con so space-time isn't fundamental. And I'll, and I'll, so what your question is, what is consciousness then? You know, where is consciousness? Well, it's not something inside space-time, right? <laughs> because space-time itself is is not fundamental. So what I'm doing is is proposing that space-time that, that consciousness itself is fundamental in the theory that I'm working on. So we have a theory of conscious agents, and and I should say just one more reason why I'm doing that. So my again my brilliant friends and colleagues who are doing the work where they assume space-time is fundamental, they have what I call the stipulation problem the stipulation problem of consciousness. They stipulate that space and time exist, particles and space and time exist. They stipulate then certain patterns of activity of those particles, like integrated information or orchestrated collapse or global workspaces or uh, uh, attention schemas or whatever it might be. So they, so they stipulate those, they stipulate space, time and particles, they stipulate these patterns of activity and then they cannot use those theories to even predict one specific conscious experience. Like, for example, what is the pattern of integrated information theory that must be the taste of chocolate? It could not be the taste of a cherry. Now, I've asked Tononi that a couple times, and, and there's, no, there's no specific experience that they can say, we now can say this is the precise pattern of integrated information that for clean reasons, has to be the taste of chocolate. It could not be anything else. So we, we've nailed, so, so they can't do that. So, and, and, and no theory that starts with space and time, you know, like orchestrated collapse of microtubules, none of them can do this. And, and, and so they then have to stipulate the conscious experiences 
right? So, so they stipulate space-time, they stipulate the, you know, the global workspace, integrated, and then they stipulate the conscious, so everything's stipulated, nothing is explained. There is not, no specific experience that's explained. So you stipulate space-time, you stipulate your, your, your pattern of activity, integrated, and then you stipulate the conscious experience. So, so my attitude is, that's a lot of stipulation. Now that's the stipulation problem. So let's only stipulate conscious experiences. So by Occam's razor, you know, make as few assumptions as possible. I'm only going to stipulate the conscious experiences, which they're stipulating already. So the physicalists already, either they deny that there's conscious experiences. So my, you know, my, my friend Keith Frankish, a brilliant philosopher, just says there is no such thing. He's an illusionist. And, and Dan Dennett. So, so they can stipulate that it's an illusion. Um, but, but I say, you know, those, most people don't. So most of my colleagues, you know, 99% of them think that conscious experiences are, are serious. They're not just illusions. So, so I'm only stipulating conscious experiences. And then what I'm trying to do is a mathematical model of conscious experiences that I call conscious agent theory. And then we're showing how space-time arises as a user interface description that certain conscious agents um, used to interact with other conscious agents, but it's just one user interface uh, of many. So again, it's a long answer to your question, but where, where is consciousness? Not in space-time, not a product of space-time. Our best science tells us it couldn't be, because space-time itself is not fundamental. So I'm proposing that consciousness is more fundamental than space-time, and that space-time is just one kind of data structure, a very shallow almost trivial data structure that some conscious agents use to simplify their interactions with other conscious agents. It's one virtual reality headset, one kind of virtual reality headset that, that, that there's, so think of it as a vast social network of interacting, there's this big social network and it's two companies like Twitterverse, right? There's millions of Twitter users, billions of tweets. You can't, you can't read all the tweets, you can't greet all the users. So you, you have little tools to sort of get what's trending and so forth. So you have these user interfaces. So consciousness uses, it's a vast social network and conscious agents use space-time, some of them, probably not that many. It's, it's a pretty trivial, we, we, got, we got a cheap headset. It's only four dimensional, maybe 10 dimensional. And it, it poops out at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. It's really, I mean, if it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, I might be impressed, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. We, we got the cheap model. So space-time is a cheap model headset but, but there's probably countless other much more interesting headsets with trillions of dimensions and, and, and far more, you know, and, and may even maybe beyond the notion of dimension. So consciousness I view in that sense is, is far more fundamental and space-time is, is, is just a trivial, in, in our case, a trivial cheap headset that, um, that we use to interact with other conscious agents. Long answer to your question, but, but important no, to be but clear. Yeah, but that last part, I think, makes a good segue for my next question, because I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned virtual realities, I wanted to ask you about simulated reality. So, do you think that uh, if your theory is correct, it could have some implications for how we think about and deal with simulated realities that we ourselves create, for example, in virtual worlds, uh, computers, and I mean, even that sort of traditional 
Robert Nozick's experience machine thought experiment where we plug ourselves into a machine and it's, it feels so real that we can't really distinguish it from reality. I mean, something along those lines. I mean, do you think that if we are dealing with an interface anyways, that uh, simulated realities are really that different from what we're experiencing anyways? That, that, that's a great question. And, and I, I, the answer is, I think, yes, um, this, what we're experiencing right now is a simulated reality, but I need to really distinguish when I say that from the standard view. So there's okay. simulation theory is, is, is a well-known concept. Uh, Nick Bostrom, for example, is, is one of the better known versions of it. And, but there are lots that are like, like his version where his idea is that um, if what we're seeing here is, is not reality as it is, it's just a simulation. There's some computer programmer that's, that's done the real smart you know, genius programmer somewhere that programmed the whole thing up and programmed up this world and programmed up us and our consciousnesses. And then it turns out that that programmer and their, their computer is not the fundamental reality because there's a deeper programmer with a deeper computer that, that has run a simulation and they're the, the simulation that, that that person, but then it keeps going down layer after layer after layer of simulation. But at the bottom, in the standard version, what is the reality at the bottom in, in the standards, like Bostrom simulation theory? It's a physical space-time world. So there, there's trapped in the, in the notion that space-time and physics is fundamental that's the fundamental reality. That's one assumption they're making. And the second assumption they're making is that somehow a physical computer running the right simulation could create consciousness, could create conscious experiences. Mm -hmm. Well, both of those assumptions are false. It, it's false that the fundamental reality is space-time. And it's false that uh, you know, physical systems with the right computational properties can create conscious experiences. Both of those claims are, are false. So, so standard simulation theory is flat out false, I, I claim. So when I say that I think that, that this is like a simulation, you, you can see that I'm, I'm, I have to completely distance myself from the standard physicalist and emergentist kind of views where consciousness emerges somehow from, from um, computational systems. It doesn't, it can't, and space-time is not fundamental. And our physics tells us that space-time is not fundamental. So that, that whole approach to the simulation theory is false at, the, at its root. The root of it is false. And, and so, so I, I want to completely dissociate myself from that kind of simulation theory. But what we're perceiving is a VR, just a virtual reality. And so it is, in some sense, just a simulation, right? The, the reality is not a spatial temporal one. Um, and, and I agree that, that this is just one of many kinds of simulations that we could have. There, there are countless different simulations. And maybe, you know, when some psychedelic experiences that, that people have on certain psychedelics, that where they get the sense that, that this headset dissolved and they're seeing through different headsets. They're, 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 even William James, the very famous... Um, um, psychologist, um, mm -hmm. perhaps the most famous psychologist of all time, in, in his Principles of Psychology, talks about 
I think he, he may have taken nitrous oxide or something like that, and, and his experience has changed. And he said, our normal, everyday conscious experience that we take as standard is separated by the, a very thin film from all sorts of other kinds of conscious experiences um, that are that are completely different, and and so those could be other quote unquote um, you know simulations or or, or headsets or v virtual realities, and it's interesting that space time itself is just a headset, and every one of us, myself included, believes it. We we believe that space and time is fundamental. I I. When I'm not thinking about it, I just assume that I'm an object in space and time. I believe that I'm my body. I believe I'm my brain. And and so I, I, I believe the VR. I, I believe, so it's like if I was playing, you know, Grand Theft Auto, a VR Grand Theft Auto game. And I, I, I have an avatar in Grand Theft Auto. And if it's really immersive, I get identified with my avatar. If something actually comes and tries to attack my avatar, I have a visceral reaction to it. It's like, you know, I might actually squirm in my chair and so forth. I get identified, if it's really good, I get identified with the avatar. Well, we've gotten completely identified with our avatar in this game that we call Space and Time. And um, spiritual traditions are basically, one way to think about them is they're saying, wake up, this is just an avatar. You are not your body, that's just an avatar. Um, but that, if that's the case, then you could try lots of other simulations with different avatars. And maybe what consciousness does is it's it just trying on all these different simulations. It gets identified with the avatars. It lets itself get lost in the game. And then it wakes up again and it says, oh, that was just my avatar. That's not me. That's just my avatar in the game. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was trying to understand if, for example, we are able to develop technology to in some sort of way feed our brains with information that they process in a way that they create, let's say, a reality that feels as real as what we experience in the, let's say, space-time interface, if that would be problematic in the sense that there are philosophers, for example, that say it would because it wouldn't be reality itself, of course, they are talking about space-time, that's the reality they're talking about, and all other sorts of, I don't know, ethical and psychological implications of not living a real life, but objectively speaking, if, the, if what we are perceiving through our brains, I mean, if it comes from some sort of information we feed it through a computer or some sort of information we get directly through our senses. I mean, does it make that much of a difference? Well, uh, I'll answer two different levels. I think that already there's interesting research going on. For example, my friend David Eagleman, uh, David Eagleman, E-A-G-L-E-M-A-N, is doing some really interesting work in the direction that you're talking about practical ways of extending our senses so that we can, for example, um, he can give you people data from um, like the stock market in a particular way. And, and you can then all of a sudden just experience the stock market in your body and even experience where it's going to go. 
so you can use it to actually you know make money and so forth in the stock market. Once you learn to to experience that way, you can sort of you you just sort of perceive the stock market through, through your body. So there's so David Eagleman's work on this is really quite you know quite telling. But I think that as brilliant as David is, we, we've just scratched the surface, and that when we understand how space-time itself arises as just a user interface from a network of, so we have a network of conscious agents, and we understand how that network constructs this particular space-time interface. Once we understand that, and I think I think we can do that. I think that that's well within our, our mathematical and technological under, you know, tools. We can then reverse engineer space-time, and, and we should be able to um, change our headset, for example. We should be able to fashion new headsets for ourselves, and we should be able to have technology that is not limited to space-time. Instead of, for example, traveling to Andromeda Galaxy, which right now would, going through space-time, it would take, I think, um, 2.4 million years to go to Andromeda Galaxy through space-time. Um, once we know the software that, that we use to create space-time, um, we can just play with it. We can go outside of space-time. We can go to Andromeda Galaxy, not through space-time, but around space-time, because space-time is just a data structure. So, so we won't be trapped inside space-time. We won't need to spend, have rockets and spend lots of fuel and time to get to Andromeda. It'll be like Grand Theft Auto again. Someone might be a wizard of driving a car in Grand Theft Auto, and we're really impressed with how that wizard can get from A to B in, in record time and so forth in their car. But if you actually know that, if you're the software engineer who, who wrote the software on Grand Theft Auto, well, you can do magic that would make the wizard cry. You can take the gas out of his tank. You can give him all flat tires. You can change the geometry of the road. You can do whatever you want. You, you can be quote unquote God to the person in Grand Theft Auto, even to the, even to the wizard. And so we're, we're, at the point where, as we begin to really understand um, the next baby step beyond space-time, our first baby step beyond space-time, and I think maybe this network of conscious agents may be it, how that gives rise to space-time, we'll be able to reverse engineer it and make new headsets and new technology that completely go around it. So, and and then the, the it, it will open us up, getting back to the heart of your question, it will open us up to whole new realms of experience that we don't have access to right now. For, for example, if I ask you to just imagine a specific color that you've never seen before, nothing happens. I, I can't think of it. But if we can now tinker with the headset, we might allow you to experience those new colors. So now some people who've taken psychedelic drugs tell us that that they, they, they've seen colors and experiences that they'd never seen before. So they, somehow they had been opened up to a new range of experiences. And so, so I, I think the answer to your question is yes, that we, we can do it. And, and yes, we need to be careful because um, it's scary to go where you've never been before. And it's easy to lose your footing and to lose grip. And, and so we'll, we'll need to do this cautiously I think that we, we can do it, but it's it's very much like um, hang gliding. Yeah, we can do it, but you might want to go with an instructor first, and you might want to, you know, you, you, I wouldn't just sort of take 
uh, hang gliding thing and, and read the instructions and say, okay, I'll just do it. I, I would I would do baby steps first and do a little, you know, so in other words, we should be, we, we'll be able to do it, but um, we shouldn't be fools in the process. By the way, since you already mentioned psychedelics twice, do you think that whatever kind of experiences people have when they use psychedelics uh, put them uh, closer to objective reality than what they perceive normally or not? Not, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I, I think that in, in many cases um, we may, once we've develop the theory further and we understand what's going on in a deeper context. We may understand that um, many of the experiences were just sort of things got screwed up and you know, it, it wasn't a deeper insight. But but I'm completely open to the possibility that, that certain of them may actually be genuine rewirings of, or, or openings of new interfaces. That, that's certainly possible. <clears throat> um, but it, it's premature at this point to make a pronouncement. What we have to do is to definitely have a mathematically precise theory of the re realm beyond space-time. And I'm working on this with on what we call conscious agent theory. Mm -hmm. And and then an understanding of what psychedelics are, right? So psychedelics in space-time are chemicals. And right. the way we think about them is those chemicals are typically interacting with receptors in, in brains, so mm -hmm. neural receptors, and they're changing um, the the firing patterns of, of neurons and so forth. That's what we're seeing inside space and time. Um, what we're real, what those chemicals are in this deeper realm. So you know, what is DMT? What is LSD? When we reverse reverse engineered outside of space time into this realm of conscious agents, say, what pattern of dynamics of conscious agents gets projected into what we call LSD? or DMT or whatever it might be. And when we see DMT interacting with, with neural receptors and changing patterns of neural dynamics, what, we have to pull that back. What are we doing in the realm of conscious agents? What, so what's going on there? Once we understand that, and we won't do that today, but, but we can do it in principle. We, we should be able to do it in principle. Then we can start to answer the, the technical question, okay, which of these drugs are just sort of screwing things up? Which of them are maybe, now that we understand what user interface is, how do we build user interfaces using networks of conscious agents? Okay, this drug is really building a new interface. So it really is a new headset, a new VR. Whereas this one is just sort of like, it's the old headset and it got fudged up and it got messed up. You know, you've got a short circuit in your current headset, not, not, not a new headset, right? So we'll, we'll be able to distinguish those. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think that is for, for people who want to make pronouncements now, it's way too early. We, we have to have a much richer science of what's beyond space-time before we can make intelligent pronouncements. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, do you think that um, the interface theory of perception would have any implications for how we think about, um, how should I put it, uh, things that we experience mentally but do not correspond to anything out there empirically like for example spirits ghosts divine entities like gods i mean since uh, even if we don't 
perceive them through our senses, if we still have some sort of mental experience of them, I mean, would that mean anything different from what scientists uh, think about them? Well, so you know, many people have reported seeing apparitions and ghosts and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, some under psychedelics, some, some not. And uh, anything that's experienced is just an experience, mm -hmm. right? So it, any experience is not the final reality. It's always going to be a right. headset of some kind. And so, so those apparitions themselves, they, they may open your mind to new possibilities that you haven't thought about before. But those apparitions themselves are still confined to the headset. You're seeing them in your space-time headset. Um, right. But I think that as we progress in our understanding, um, we may be able to you know, talk about consciousnesses in a way that's scientifically respectable, that, that's, that's rigorous, and, and makes predictions, um, and 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 goes beyond our current like physical theories. So so I should be really careful about what I what I mean here. So I have some friends and and, and colleagues who who are studying what they call psi phenomena. Right? These are paranormal kinds of phenomena, um, and. For example, one thing they might be trying to, to study is how someone's intent might change the output of a random number generator, something like that. Or if, if a lot of people sort of work together and focus their attention, maybe they can change certain dynamics of, of, of some system, some physical system. And and again, m many of the people who are doing this are, are friends of mine or, or, or acquaintances, and many of them are, are brilliant brilliant researchers. And I've, I've taught uh, workshops actually with a couple of them myself. And so I've gotten to know them quite well personally. And they're, they're, they're really smart. So here's, here's where my approach differs from the standard psi approach to this mm -hmm. whole thing. I think that they're not going big enough. They're, they're, so they're not bold enough. The way that they're really thinking about it is that there is a space-time machine. There's this physics machine. And almost everything is controlled by that machine. But they want to show that there is a ghost as well, a ghost in the machine. It's a pretty wimpy ghost. It has really small biceps. It can only push you know, a, a few digits of a random number generator at the far ends. So this ghost, it's, it's pretty skinny and pretty, pretty wimpy. But but it's real. They they want to say but so so physics isn't everything. There is this little and that's sort of the the framework in which they're just trying to show that consciousness could do something there, uh, and 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 they're assuming that if consciousness does something, it's going to be something that violates the laws of physics. <clears throat> okay. My attitude is. You're not thinking big enough. The laws of consciousness itself is fundamental. And what we call the machine is just a particular headset that consciousness uses to, to look at its own dynamics. So the laws of physics is how consciousness works as seen through our headset. That's what, 
So we don't need to look for anomalies for consciousness. We don't need, consciousness is not a little ghost in the machine. Consciousness is the entire machine. The machine is just our representation of how consciousness works. Now, as we find these structures of, of conscious agent dynamics outside of space-time, hopefully, and I, I fully expect, that we will discover new laws about how consciousness works that will transcend our current laws of, of, of physics, quantum field theory and general relativity and so forth, and will lead to brand new technologies. And, and they will, quote, unquote, be anomalous com, you know, compared to our current science. But they, they, they won't be exceptions. They will be the new, deeper laws of, quote-unquote, physics. They'll be the new, deeper laws. So, so instead of looking for, you know, paranormal phenomena as exceptions, you know, as, as anomalies outside the laws of physics, that, that's the wrong way to think about it. The laws of physics are our current model of how consciousness works. And as we get a deeper understanding of consciousness, we will get new laws, not, not anomalies, new general theories of which the current laws of physics will be shown to be a special case. And, and so, so that you can see it's a completely different headset. There's no wimpy ghost we're trying to find in the machine. The, the machine is just our current model of how the ghost works, and the ghost has a lot more tricks to show us, and it will lead to, quote-unquote, bigger and more fancy machines and new technology. Um, so, so you can see, again, I'm good friends with these people. I, I think, I mean, I understand where they're going. But it's so hard for us to let go of space and time. Even those who want to think of consciousness as being important, to, to realize that it's the whole story and, and space and time is just a headset that some agents use is, 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 is a, a bridge too far for many people. <laughs> is it possible for truth-seeing organisms to evolve? Does evolutionary theory allow for that or not at all? Well, current evolutionary theory says the probability is zero. You know, that's, the, that, that, that's just a theorem of evolution by natural selection. And by the way, for those who, who don't want to take my word for it, they, they want to see the, the, the theorem in proof. The paper is available online for free. If you just Google my name, Donald Hoffman, and the paper, one paper is called Fact, Fiction, and Fitness. So if you just Google Fact, Fiction, and Fitness, and Donald Hoffman, um, my name is on it, but the heavy lifting was by Chaitan Prakash, the, the mathematician. <clears throat> you can see in that paper, in, in our references to other papers that are published online, you can see the mathematics that, that basically say, if we assume evolution by natural selection and it's um, mathematical instantiation and evolutionary game theory, then the probability is zero that, um, that we, we can never see the, the truth at all. Now, can, is there some other notion of evolution in which beyond evolution of natural selection, in which we could have a, 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 an evolution of consciousness somehow that's, that allows us to see the truth? And I think that Gödel's incompleteness theorem says no. That, that there's this unlimited intelligence, this unlimited realm of truth, and no theory and no finite set of experiences, no finite system at all, even though it's going to have infinite potential by, by this procedural complexity. 
the notion of truth will always transcend any particular theory and any particular set of experiences. And, and I think that that's a clear implication of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So if we want the idea that we could ever perceive the truth with a capital T or know the truth in an intellectual cognitive kind of sense, a theory-based sense, I think the answer is no, but but the, but I don't despair because I think we are that unlimited intelligence. That's what you are, and that's what I am. And math and knowledge and experiences are just ways that this unlimited intelligence takes a peek at itself. Um, but and, but you can never know itself fully that way in, in principle. But in some sense, if you want to know the truth, sit in silence and let go of all concepts and just be. And that's the closest you'll ever be. So even if uh, truth-seeing organisms cannot evolve, do you think that it would be at least theoretically possible for us to ever be able to perceive objective reality. I mean, I don't even know what that would mean or entail because I can't understand even what it would mean for us to perceive objective reality. But is do you think it's possible in any way? Well, I, I think that with the tools of science, so mathematics and logic and um, experiments and so forth, we will forever be exploring and discovering new things, but we will never get to the truth. It's, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful exploration and we should do it. And we will learn in the process, but theories are just theories and experiences are just experiences. And they themselves can never comprehend in the sense of completely enfold or contain the truth. They can point to the truth, but they can never, um, concepts can never completely entail it. So there's no theory of everything um, and no experimental or experiential everything either. But, so that's at the level of science. In, in, at the level of who you are, if you are this unlimited intelligence that transcends any concepts, then the closest you will be to that is in some sense when you let go of all concepts and all experiences and just experience being well i'm using the word experience now in another way you're just being there um as the field of awareness in which all these experiences and, and logic and math come up so they all come up in this field of being that you are and that being, which can't be known cognitively, but, but, but you can quote unquote know it by just being it without thinking about it. And see, that's, that's the, the, the interesting conundrum here. And you, you might, might say, look, if, if consciousness is this fundamental reality, why does it bother and it, and it transcends any description and any experience, why does it bother to have experiences at all? 
what, what are we doing with making this uh, four-dimensional world with experiences of birth and death and pain and and you know success and failure and so forth and yeah I don't know I think that's that's one of the deepest questions someone could ever ask is why is there something rather than nothing right if you can't say consciousness why, why why does it bother to to um, piddle around in things that that we are provably um, infinitely less complicated than than consciousness itself <laughs> and therein I think lies a, a deep deep secret I mean that that but it, one pointer may be again from Gödel's incompleteness theorem if there, there's no end to the exploration of mathematical structure and that's Gödel says there's there's literally no end it's, it's it's impossible to be omniscient about mathematical structure and if consciousness is the fundamental reality that's that's what really is um, then mathematical structure is only about the possible varieties of consciousness and that's endless so maybe what consciousness is up to is the endless exploration of all of its possibilities and right now we're in a particularly simple one a four-dimensional space-time headset that is so shallow it only goes to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters so so we're in one of the cheaper simulations that that consciousness is using to explore its potential and but that there's countless others that we can't even imagine because we're stuck in this particular little headset right now but but when we take this head and we, we we will all take this headset off and who knows what new headsets we'll get um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean this is really mind bending <laughs> <would say. laughs> so uh, you've already referred to I think some of the existential implications to all of this, but I would like to ask you one final question. So you've referred also to the connections to spirit, spiritual traditions out there for that have been out there for millennia now. Uh, do you think that this could help us perhaps bridge the gap and uh, break the tension, the centuries-long tension between science and religion? I, I think so. I think that, of course, there's been a long antipathy between science and religion, at least since Galileo was put under house arrest by yeah. the Catholic Church. Um, and scientists have been there have been many Christian scientists, you know, Newton, many, many Christian scientists, you know, since then. But, but there's been this um, backing off and separation, and and right, and and now a frank antipathy between science and and, and religion. But, but I think that both have a piece of the puzzle, and that science and spirituality, I look forward to them interacting and collaborating. It's going to be, both have something to offer. Science has um, the, 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 the rigor of logic and mathematics, so precise theories that tell you their limits, and experimental tests. But the spiritual traditions have been saying for thousands of years that space-time isn't fundamental. And they've been exploring you know, with meditation and so forth, what might be beyond space-time. So they've been, so science has all these tools, but they've been stuck, science has been stuck in space-time until the last 15, 20 years. Um, 
these spiritual traditions have already been out there beyond space-time, but they've not had, they've had good tools in meditation and so forth, but they've not had the, the math and logic and experimental tools. And, and so one of the downsides of imprecise theories is dogmatism, right? You, you, you can believe that my, my idea, my theory is the final word, and you can then start to fight people who disagree with you. Scientists, of course, are people, and scientists are as dogmatic as anybody else on the planet. But scientific theories tell you their limits, and they are an antidote to dogmatism. So what I would like to see in the future is um, scientists and spiritual teachers getting together, having cross-disciplinary dialogues, I think many scientists can learn from the ideas that the spiritual traditions have found, but, but because the spiritual traditions do not have mathematically precise statements, mm -hmm. many of the things that they have are insights, and many of the things that they say are false. And the, just like in science, we have many good ideas, and many of them are, are bogus, but we try to fight. So, so I'm not saying that spirituality has already done it, and science just needs to learn from the spirit, and it's not that way at all. Right. And I'm not saying that science knows all the answers and spiritual traditions just need to get their act together and learn the science. Not at all. <clears throat> science has great methods and precise theories <clears throat> that tell you their limits. Wonderful tools. Spiritual traditions have insights from millennia of meditation and, and other spiritual pr practices. Insights, fallible, but genuine insights about a spiritual realm beyond space and time. We need to find the use the tools of science to figure out which, which of the spiritual ideas are insights and which are bogus, and, and then develop a new language, write a more precise language in the spiritual realm, <clears throat> where we can actually then get spiritual theories that tell you their limits. Until we have spiritual theories that can tell you their limits, we really don't have a genuine spiritual theory yet. So that's what I'm looking for, is the first spiritual theory that says precisely the limits of, of, of that theory. Then, then humanity is going to be on a really good path because then we'll have the tools to, with humility, but lots of promise move forward in truly understanding who we are through science and spirituality collaborating. Great. So let's end on that point and uh, again i will mention the book the case against reality why evolution hid the truth from our eyes i will be leaving a link to it in the description box and uh, also of course to our first interview and dr hoffman uh, thank you so much again for your time and it's been really nice to see you three and a half years after our first talk and keep up the good work please because i i'm really a big fan and I, I i was really fascinated by your book and the rest of your work so thank you so much for all of that thank you very much it, it great to talk with you again and i appreciate your wonderful questions today hi guys thank you for watching this interview until the end if you like what i'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable please consider supporting me on patreon or paypal all of the links are in the description box of this interview 
Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Ricalenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dajda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackelford, Sunny Smith and John Wiseman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruggieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.